0: Today's guest is two-time NCAA champion Cameron Mills. You're listening to The 19.9 Podcast. Today, we're going to talk with the 6'3 sharpshooter about his journey to Kentucky and the first two national championship teams at UK, the loaded 95-96 squad that featured nine, that's right, nine NBA players.
1: Coach has been telling us we're not as good as we think we are now we've just proved it. Um, and then, but then the result of that loss, we don't lose for another 28-29 games.
0: We also get into Cameron's formative years in Lexington, starring at Dunbar High, before shunning D1 scholarship offers, and matriculating to Kentucky as a walk-on.
1: Coach Tino put it to me this way. He said, Cameron, there will be no difference in you and Tony Delk, other than the fact, um, well, talent, obviously, but he didn't, he didn't say that. I just knew that. Um, There'll be no difference in you and Tony Delk other than that your parents will be paying your way to come to school here and Tony Delk has a scholarship.
0: It's time to start the show. isn't it amazing when Michigan can keep this game to a night?
2: So let's get right to it, Cameron. Thanks for joining us here on the Nineteen Nine Podcast.
1: Glad to be here, man. Thanks for having right, me. Right, man.
2: Well, Cameron, uh, still in Lexington, man. What's 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 the vibe down in Lexington with UK hoops these days?
1: Well, I guess the most recent stuff is, um, uh, of course, uh, Reed Shepherd, Jeff Shepard, one of my teammates, who we'll talk about a lot today, I'm sure. Um, his son Reed um, got offered by Coach Cal Perry earlier this year, said yes, which. Um, pretty much everybody, I I, I I say this, I don't know how accurate it is, but I was, I'm was i close to Chef, and I are closer now than we were when we played. And it just, I think he was always trying to tell me without telling me that, yeah, if Coach Cal offers, it's going to be hard to say no to um, for Reed. But um, the cool thing is here in the last week or so, Reed just went out to LA um, and played in his last official AAU tournaments because as soon as, um, you know, school starts back in a couple of weeks and he'll go back to playing at North Laurel. And then um, when that season's over, he becomes property of U.K., and he'll start having to work out with them under their uh under their summer, which is uh which is always fun to think about as a former player, what that first summer was like when you had to report as a freshman because it was grueling and awful. And so I, I'm gonna enjoy watching Reed, who I loved to death as a kid, um, watching him and kind of um, you know, his dad and I making fun of like what he's gonna have to go through. Uh, cause it's just that it, it's just the big leap between how, how good you are. And Reed had this amazing AAU tournament last week. Um, and just kind of showed the nation that he he belongs at Kentucky and belongs maybe even uh, he may be one of these hope he's not one and done, but he may be he may not be there long as well as he played last week. But there's a lot to be said about that. Um, but that's all the talk right now uh, in Kentucky is about Coach Cal putting together. Um, this amazing recruiting class, not only for 2023, but um, I think maybe for this upcoming year. Of course, that may have been signed already. I don't know. It's funny. I don't keep up with recruiting until they're like ours, And once it's a done deal um, and they are now freshmen starting their freshman season, that's when I kind of take an interest. Um, but a lot of other people, they, they look, they're looking at their fans, meaning part of BBN. They're looking at the recruiting three or four years from now and take it personally if a kid shuns us um but uh but that's just who BBN is so um it's but that's all the talk right now is the recruiting of course
2: that's cool and you know you mentioned that's a multi-generational cats family there with Jeff and his son Reed and, and you know you come from one yourself I mentioned in the opening Cameron that your father Terry played hoops for the cats so I imagine you inherited some of his enthusiasm for the game but tell us about your introduction to the game when did you really fall in love with hoops how'd you get introduced to it
1: well, so my dad was not one of these dads who forced the game on us. Uh, didn't force anything on us. He basically, you know, my dad was excited as excited about me playing the trumpet, um, in sixth grade as he was about me playing basketball in sixth grade. Um, so I always appreciate that about him. Now there was, um, a moment where my brother and I, of course, my brother was, uh, between me and my dad, my brother was the better basketball player. Um, he, he, he went small school Nai was an AI player of the year 2001 and even got, um, uh, message or um, offers well he was on the Denver nuggets summer League team for one day first day of practice broke his leg um broke his foot sorry, and kind of came home happy that his career was over it's it 's a long story but um th- when Collier and I went to dad and this was probably around fifth fourth or fifth grade and said we wanted to be college basketball players that 's when dad that 's when it became serious that 's when it was like okay, if this is what you want, now I become dad slash coach Before, he was never really dad slash coach. He was just dad. Now he's dad slash coach because what he knew was what we didn't know as kids. And what nobody knows is what you – well, what most people don't know when you don't have someone like a father who played at Kentucky is what it takes um, to get there. I mean, that it's not about going out and shooting, playing – um, you know, pick up with your friends every day. I mean, that's fine, but that's not enough. I mean, you've got to start early. You've got to get up 500 jump shots a day. You've got to have workouts that, and I didn't learn this till I got to UK, you got to have workouts that are going 45 minutes hard and getting up 500 jump shots in 45 minutes, which is, I went from getting up 500 jump shots in an hour and a half to two hours when I was doing it on my own, because I would bounce, bounce, walk, walk, shot, go rebound, walk. And then all of a sudden I get to UK and Coach Patino's putting us through uh, 42 minute individual instructions where you get up 500 jump shots. So um, but anyway, um, that's kind of when um, uh, Collier and I both basketball became more serious. It was around fourth or fifth grade. As far as dad's enthusiasm for Kentucky, he really and this this is going to sound weird. It's not that he didn't have any. He did. I remember we went to games uh, as a former player. You get two tickets um, and um, he has his tickets still. I have mine still. And so I remember growing up and we would go to games. And my brother and I would pick the games we wanted to go to all the home games. Rupp Arena. Um, so we, it's not that he didn't have enthusiasm. It's just that up until I would say third or fourth grade, I didn't quite understand. I didn't put it together. I mean, I hear I was growing up in Kentucky, growing up with a father who played for Adolph Rupp, who played at Kentucky. Um, and it never dawned on me that my dad was someone famous in Kentucky or a former player who still, I mean, it just never, I never put it together until He's third dead. grade. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. He he was dad, and and I guess I knew he played at Kentucky, but it was never a big deal to me. And maybe that's because he never acted like it was such a big deal. My my dad's really humble about his time at Kentucky. Um, uh, even humble about the fact that he outscored me in his career, which was man, that was deflating to me because I had the three point line and he didn't have it. And when I found out that in his four years he scored more than I did, I was like, oh man. Um, but anyway, so in third grade is actually when I finally started putting it together. Which maybe that's early enough, but. We had a project in third grade for um we had to do a collage poster board on about a hero of ours. And I came home stumped because I didn't know who to choose. And and every all my other classmates I remember were choosing celebrities, right? They were choosing someone famous. And so I was stuck because I don't think I had I I grew up loving Magic Johnson and you know his battle with Larry Bird in the eighties. Um and so I, I think I was kind of leaning towards him, but I don't even know if Magic had kind of become my hero. But my mom suggested my dad is, you know, who I do the collage on. And I was like, why dad? Because I saw him as a hero as my dad, but all my other friends were picking celebrities. I'm like, well, no, dad doesn't qualify as that. So therefore I couldn't do it. And then she started getting out all of these um, clippings because my mom and dad had been together since she was 19. Dad was a senior in high school. Um, Or I'm sorry, a senior in college. Dad was at his senior year at UK. They were married. Uh, So dad's senior year at UK, um, he played as a, a, uh, not as a bachelor anymore, but as a married man, which I think looking back just sounds almost unbelievable to me that that would even be allowed um, by the coaching staff, knowing that our coaching staff barely allowed us to have girlfriends. Um, But anyway, so um, I did it on dad. She got out all these press clippings and all these write-ups and these pictures of, of dad and coach Rupp and dad and his teammates and dad in a Kentucky uniform. And it was that 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 project that really kind of solidified in my mind oh i'm 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 the son of a player my dad is a former player um and then uh pete meravich died and i don't know if you remember when pete meravich died but that was a personal connection because my dad um had actually talked to me about who pete meravich was and what i didn't understand and it's funny how you learn these things is it took pete meravich passing away for me to really understand my dad's connection with Kentucky and Pete Maravich, because every single time my dad played or Kentucky played LSU in the 70s or in the, or in the late 60s, early 70s. So dad played 66 to 71. He redshirted a year. Dad was the best defender on the team, which I mean he had to guard Pistol Pete. And so um, and I didn't understand how big a deal that was when Pistol Pete died. All of a sudden we're living in Somerset, Kentucky. And all of a sudden, Dad's getting phone calls from the Lexington Herald leader, from all the television stations up in Lexington, from the television stations in Louisville, wanting to interview him about what it was like trying to guard the pistol. And I'll tell you, it's hysterical watching Dad. There's actually, you can go to YouTube and find one of their games. um, And it's, Maravich was amazing. I mean, everybody thinks LeBron's amazing, Jordan's amazing, and they are. But go go back and watch the black and white footage of Pete Maravich um, dropping 60 or 70 points on the team nightly. um, Without without a three-point line. line, Without a three-point line. Um, and it was, I mean, so when we watched the, those get that game on YouTube, and I've watched it more than once, it's so much fun to watch. Um, my dad is literally in in his jock, you know, thirty three feet from the basket. Dad is in him, and Maravich is just shooting fadeaway three pointers and making them, and only getting two points for him. So anyway, so it was it was the collage. It was Maravich passing away. It was all that that kind of really ensconced me and wanting to be, and not only understanding what I was a part of. Uh, the heritage of being a Kentucky former Kentucky player or being the son of one, but desperately wanting to go to Kentucky. I mean, that was the real reason. Yes. I grew up at Kentucky. I grew up in Kentucky, but I wanted to be a wildcat because of dad more than anything.
2: Gotcha. And you know, you had a decorated basketball career at Dunbar high in Lexington. And so when you were considering your next steps in college, how did you navigate that process and, and what opportunities were you considering until coach Patino came on and talked about you being a walk on at Kentucky?
1: Well, yeah, so the way it happened is I wasn't navigating it very well because I wasn't getting any attention from Kentucky, um, which was my only school. I didn't. Have, it, it was kind of one of those things where um, the schools that I turned down um, uh, scholarships from really were um, Georgia. I remember getting some attention from Alabama and then Louisville, but the Louisville attention came late in the recruiting process because basically one of the things my parents did, which they they were my parents were trendsetters in a, in the sense of. Nowadays, all these kids have these huddle highlight videos, right, that they post online. Well, my parents, back before there was an Internet um, and before there was a huddle and before there was anything like that, my parents realized the importance of getting, you know, uh, of not assuming that just because a coach um, hasn't seen me play doesn't mean I might not be interested. And so they had, they, they requisitioned, I should say, um, someone at my high school, one of our stu- my fellow students to put together a highlight reel. They paid him. I don't know what they paid him, but I'm, I'm sure it had to be a lot because he came up with a 45 minute highlight video of me and we only made five copies and we sent them to the creme de la creme of college basketball. We sent them to North Carolina. We sent one to Duke. We sent one to UCLA. We sent one to Kentucky, of course, and we sent one to Louisville. And I think we may have sent one to Kansas. So we, we, I kind of like picked like the, 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 the dream the schools, <laughs> yeah. like, yes, the, the blue perfectly set. And, um, Sent one to all of them. The only school that I heard back from was Louisville and Denny Crum. And Denny Crum was so impressed by the video. He came to watch me play in a pickup game um, after school, um, pick up with my teammates at Dunbar. And this is uh, right before my senior year, I think. And then decided basically he made me the number two option at the two guard for the 93 or 94, 95 recruiting class. Um, the problem is the number one option. And I don't remember who he was, but he said yes. And he played at Louisville and it, you'd think I would know because I clearly whoever he was, I played against him, but, um, to Crum came and, um, said, you know, I went on official visit and said, look, we want you, but we've already got an offer out there on the table with somebody else. If they say yes, then, you know, sorry. Um, but if they say no, then you're our next option. And I was kind of oddly enough, as a big Kentucky fan, I was wanting to go to Louisville. Cause here's the thing I, I want more more anything. I want to stay home. Um, but I wasn't going to turn down a scholarship to the University of Georgia. That's that's a top or, or a big five uh, conference, the SEC. I get to come home and play in Lexington. Um, and the cool thing is I had a connection there with Hugh Durham and Hugh Durham was my dad's. When my dad graduated UK, he went to Florida State under Hugh Durham and was his graduate assistant for a year. Oh, okay. or two. So they had a connection there. And then Hugh Durham offered me a scholarship. And I was like, I can't turn down a scholarship to a Division One SEC school. But I just so badly want to go to Kentucky. So what happened is my dad, um, and again, all this goes back to the connections my dad had at Kentucky. So this, the equipment manager that everyone knows, Bill Kitely, um, who was there for 35, 40 years, was starting his career when my dad was there. He was actually the assistant equipment manager. So my dad knew Mr. Kitely. Everybody knew Mr. Kitely. But Mr. Kitely knew my dad. So dad would go down and, you know, we'd get to go to practice occasionally. And Mr. Kitely would let us come to practice um, when Eddie Sutton, in the Eddie Sutton era. So dad went down. It was literally the day before early signing period, right before my senior year. And Georgia was putting pressure on me to sign. And um, because they I was their number one option. And I'm I'm wanting I'm not wanting to turn them down, but I'm also not wanting to go there, which is an odd feeling to have. That's why I say I didn't handle it very well. Um, so we came up with a plan and the plan was my worry was I don't want to sign with Georgia, have an amazing senior season. Right. And then now all of a sudden UK's interested. That was a worry of mine. Now, it was, as it turned out, a worry that wasn't needed. It wasn't necessary for me to be worried about it because UK wasn't going to be interested no matter what. Um, they just weren't. They were set uh, at two guard with a guy by the name of Jeff Shepard for the next few years. Good, And Jeff and I, basically, we were a year apart. And then he redshirted, so we would have been the same anyway. Um, but Dad went down and talked to Mr. Kiley, and the question was, what if Cameron has a great senior year Is there any way you guys would be interested? And of course, Mr. Kiley doesn't know the answer to that, so he went and got a guy named Billy Donovan. So Billy Donovan walks down into Mr. Cotley's uh, office and Coach Donovan had seen me play at Coach Patino's summer camp, knew exactly who I was, um, had actually even considered me as a possible recruit, um, along with at this particular camp, a uh, Patino camp that I went to, along with a kid by the name of Jason Williams. So Jay, 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 Jason Williams and I are at this camp together and Billy Donovan tends to be watching both of us play a lot. And all of a sudden Coach Patino shows up to watch both of, both of us play and decides he doesn't want either one of us, which, which was nice um, to learn that as a junior in high school. Well, you can't um, rein in that horse. <laughs> no, Jason well, Williams. no. Oh, no. Yeah. So anyway, so the, the at some point, and this is where it gets murky as far as my, my knowledge of what happened, but someone, and I don't know if it was Billy or Coach Donovan. I don't know if it was Coach Patino, I don't know if it was Mr. Kyler, or even my dad. But someone said, look, if he wants to come here, because the answer was no, we're not going to be interested. Even if he has a great season, we're set at two guard." But the the response came back when someone brought up the question, look, if he wants to come here some, so bad, why don't you just walk on? And I don't know if that was, Coach Tino's idea. I don't know if it was Coach Donovan's idea or I don't know whose idea it was. What I do know is that I knew my dad was down there that morning while I was at school and I was a nervous wreck at school. And I knew dad promised me that whatever answer he got, as soon as he was done with that meeting with Mr. Kiley, he was going to come to school and tell me what was going on. And so I'm in English class and, and all of a sudden the phone rings. That was a big deal back then. Every classroom had a phone. Um, the, the phone rang in the, in the classroom and I see my English teacher say, "Yeah, yes, he's here. I'll send him right up. And I knew I was up and out of my chair on my way to the front <laughs> office. And uh, before she even turned to me um, and I remember walking up and dad had this big smile on his face. And um, I said, uh, as I walked up, I said, well, and he said, they want you to walk on. And Chucker, all I heard was they want you. That's all I heard. They want you. I, I, the rest of it was it, it was immaterial. I mean, walk on because the, the, the way I got to walk on was what I guess they call a preferred walk on these days. And what it basically meant was I didn't have to try out. Um, I, I was going to travel like I guess it's more football where you have a traveling squad. Basketball team, unless you've got it in 20 guys on the team, you, everybody travels. Um, Coach petino put it to me this way. He said, Cameron, there will be no difference in you. And Tony Delk, other than the fact, um, well, talent obviously, but he didn't, he didn't say that. I just knew that um, <laughs> there'll be no difference in you and Tony Delk, other than that your parents will be paying your way to come to school here, and Tony Delk has a scholarship. Um, and I was fine with that, as long as mom and dad were fine with that. And at and at the time, in-state tuition wasn't that bad. Um, and I was, it was a done deal at that point. So I was never really recruited to UK at all, um, even as a walk-on. It was kind of a, well, yeah, we'll take him as a walk-on. And I didn't care. That didn't hurt my feelings at all because my dream was to play at Kentucky, and this meant I was playing in Kentucky.
2: So, you know, I want to I get to that. So let's kind of dig into that a little bit. So you arrive on campus in 94. You're one-fourth one of a freshman class alongside Antoine Walker, Scott Paget, and Alan Edwards, some pretty good yes. company. So by this time, UK has emerged, and you know this history well. They've emerged from the darkness of the NCAA yep. sanctions, and they've reestablished themselves as a national power big yep. donations rock had right? been to
1: had been to one final four in the nineties from since coach patino resurrected the program yep. and he did yeah. he resurrected the program and, and that's that mashburn
2: travis Ward yep. crew yep it's great that, that so, was at
1: 93 on that
2: 93 yep, team yep. so and you, you you kind of hinted at this earlier like the difference between high school and college talking about Shepard, right and and you and him yeah. you and jeff kind of joke about what what his boys in for what, what were your first impressions of big time oh college gosh basketball?
1: well that that's why it's funny to me and I love hearing stories of incoming freshmen, especially when Coach Patino – now, of course, Coach Patino left when I was still here, or when I was still at Kentucky, and, and Coach uh, Tubby Smith was my coach my senior year. Um, and um, But I love hearing the stories of – because you don't know. It doesn't matter how talented you are. You have no idea that the the difference between playing – and, look, I know Coach Cal has done this amazing job, and I think that's one, one of the things he's done such an amazing job of – is preparing these guys so quickly, not just for college game, but for the professional game as well. But there's a big leap between high school and college. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care if you're Anthony Davis. There is, you know, he, the most, one of the most talented players in the world Anthony Davis. There was a quick, for him, very quick because he was that talented, but there was a learning curve into not how to play basketball at the college level, but how to get your body in shape to play college basketball. And that's what shook me. I thought I had a fantastic work ethic. In high school. And I thought because I had it in high school, I had a fantastic work, work ethic. And I knew coming in as a walk on, I was going to have if I ever expected any playing time. And the honest truth is, checker, I didn't. I didn't really expect any. Um, If I got some great. But I, I remember telling Coach Tino, look, if I'm here four years and I never play, my dream is to be here. Would I like? Yeah, I'd love to be. I'd love to be worthy of playing time. But if I never am, I'm going to be fine being sitting on the bench for four years and wearing number 21 with Nils written on the back. Um, fortunately for me, coach Patino would not let my dreams be so small. And I love him for that. It's one of the reasons I I will always be loyal to that man because he did not allow me to just sit on the bench and be satisfied with that kind of, uh, playing career. Um, but I showed up on the first day I I reported in the summer. We had the Kentucky, Indiana all-star team, all-star games, right. Um, which still go on today. Um, uh, that wrapped up, I want to say maybe middle of June. And then I was told to report to camp um, because we had Coach Patino's camp. And Coach wanted to do something that year with Alan, Antoine, um, and Scott and I, where we were actually, even though we were incoming freshmen, he wanted us to participate in camp, which I think that lasted a day. We were allowed to by NCAA rules, but it lasted a day. And then he realized, I'm kind of risking injury here by doing this. So he kind of, what he, what he wanted to do is he wanted to get us playing immediately. And so when camp starts, that's when the whole team is there. Everybody reports back from if they've taken any time off in the summer. And most of them don't. They go to, you finish your second, your spring term, you immediately go to May term. And then you take summer term, which is June, July. Um, You may have some time off, maybe three weeks in August. And then things get kicking back up. Um, But I reported um, early than camp because I lived in Lexington. So I could go down to strength and conditioning coach Sean, um, um, and uh basically say uh you know i get ahead of things because i knew i've got i've got the least amount of talent on the team i've got the most work ahead of me so i'm gonna get there early and and start working working out in the summer so i was there early summer um and i remember my first um golly my first workout was just a was just a lift it was just weight lifting and i showed up and um our strength and conditioning coach told me, and now I now I realize the joke. But he told me I show I show he told I showed up probably when he told me to. He said you show up at eleven o'clock, showed up at ten to or fifteen till, and um, he says, "Okay, I, I'm in the middle of workout. He was working somebody else out. Go grab lunch and then come back." Okay, well I'm an idiot freshman, so what do I do? I go to Burger King, get a double Whopper, probably right. Come back. He puts me on the uh, leg, um, leg lift and I probably get half a set in before I completely throw up everything um, in the trash can in the locker room. And then I realized immediately, oh, this was all part of the plan. This was send this idiot freshman to get a big lunch, bring him back and make him puke. And, and that was the thing that, that I didn't understand is that when I when you say you work hard. What it meant, now I've been told by many people who want to argue with me about this, and maybe they're right, that's, this isn't good for your body, but all I know is I was in the greatest shape of my life while I was at Kentucky. And it all started with literally working my body to the point where my body, and this went for all of us, basically said I can't go any further, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, the, it's, that, it's the thing, and Coach Patino is adamant about this, that the mental um, focus and, and mental toughness of when your body starts to shut down on you in a sense, right? You start to get that lightheadedness, you get that queasiness in your stomach because you've been working so hard. I mean, you've been running constantly, or you've been lifting weights, or it's just a culmination of a full day of workout and your body starts to say, I can't do anymore. And so you start to feel this vomitiness in your stomach. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I threw up it, just in my career, especially my freshman year, but that summer, it's funny if you we had trash cans set up at the corners of Memorial Coliseum during practice, all three years under Patino and my year under Tubby. Those trash cans were not for, you know, you know, some guys like to rinse and spit out that kind of thing. Yeah, that's what they're they were there for when you had to vomit, because it wasn't a question of if you were going to. It's a question of when. And we didn't want vomit all over the court. We had one one time Mark Pope in the middle of practice. Now, if you remember Mark Pope, Mark Pope came from Washington, right, as a transfer and he had the greatest workout ethic of anybody that I ever played with. He worked harder than anybody. He was in greater shape than everybody. I mean, he just, he had a mental toughness that I don't think anyone I ever played with had. Mark Pope in the middle of practice, probably the 95, 96, just we're running drills. And it was like a three on four, four on three something drill. And he throws up inside his his jersey, his practice jersey. I mean, again, this is his mental. This is his mental attitude, right? He's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to show weakness to go over here and throw up in the trash can. I'm just going to throw up in my jersey. So he throws up inside. So we had on this like this uh, mesh jersey, and then we had on like a cotton shooting shirt underneath it, right? So, so he he pulls his his mesh jersey out and throws up into here. Well, it's five seconds before it's all over the floor, and Coach Patino was laughing and cussing at the same time, yelling at Mark because now we got to go down to this end of the gym to do drills while the managers basically clean up Mark Pope's vomit all over the court. But that was a normal thing. It was normal to, if you weren't working out that hard to the point where your body was starting to rebel against you, then you weren't working out hard enough. And that's essentially what my entire summer was. I had to lose. Well, I many? I had to lose, but I remember my first conversation with coach P um, in the um, uh, that summer, actually it was the first day at camp. Um, he wasn't happy with my weight. Now, most of the guys that he coached, he wanted them to gain weight and bulkiness, not not me. I'm a slow white boy. So he's so careful. You get to lose weight. The lighter you are, the quicker you're going to be. Okay. It makes sense. Um, And I remember seeing him for the first time I that. This is the first time I'd seen him since he told me I could walk on. So we're talking six, seven months since I had seen him or talked to him and he comes up to me at camp and I'm I'm standing next to Scott Padgett and he and I were going to be roommates at next year. So he and I were getting to know each other. And um, coach comes up and I'm expecting a uh, Cameron Scott. Good to see you. Listen, glad you're here at camp. We're going to work hard this week. Listen, you're going to work hard for the next four years of your life. But glad you're here. That's what I'm expecting, right? What I get is a man who comes up to me, gets right in my face and says to me verbatim. And I quote Cameron first words out of his mouth in seven months that I've heard from this man. Cameron, you were the fattest effing ball player I've ever seen in my entire effing life. You either lose the weight or you're off the team and walks away. And I stand there. I'm looking at Scott and Scott's like, I don't know. I don't know. So I remember literally going home that night because I was still staying at, at, you know, I live in Lexington. So I was staying at home with my mom and dad. I remember going home and I literally checked. I was crying because I was crying because I thought, I mean, I've never been spoken to like that. and I wasn't ready for that. And um, I went home crying thinking, I can't take four years of this man. And fortunately, I didn't have to. I only had to take three of them. (laughs) But it, it, it's it's this wonderful thing that it's one of the reasons I love him to death is that what I realized, and I didn't realize this until a couple of years ago, I didn't put this together. He was guaranteed nothing out of me. He wasn't wasting a scholarship. Now, he did give me one my junior year, um, but he wasn't wasting one on me, right? He wasn't guaranteed. He, would, he wasn't recruiting me like, man, I really need Cameron Mills on my team. He was basically allowing me to be on the team and but yet in allowing me be on the team he didn't allow me to just be on the team he treated me like tony delt he treated me like roger Rhodes. he treated me like jamal mashburn in that he yelled at me as much as he yelled at anybody and a few years ago it dawned on me that he didn't have to do that he didn't have to waste energy on me but because he did he got something out of me my junior year i mean i went from not playing at all to Being the second leading, or Wayne Turner, I argue over this. There's probably stats that prove me wrong, but being the second or third leading scorer on the team during the NCAA tournament in 97, all because of how he treated me and coached me. Now, today it would be called verbal, emotional, mental abuse, I'm sure. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. What I do know is that you you can either, it's kind of that fight or flight uh, mentality when someone treats you like that, when you're coached up, so they say. You can get mad at your coach, take it personally, and turn off or you can take it as a challenge, realize it's not personal. He doesn't hate you, even though it feels like he does, and learn from everything he says and respond in a way that just laugh it off because that's what he actually expects you to do. Laugh it off. Um, some guys at UK, most of my teammates were able to do that. Some were not, uh, wound up, you know, transferring and leaving away because they just they didn't like it. And I understand that it was tough. But that's what that freshman, that summer for freshman year was like. It was rapidly, quickly getting used to a work ethic that you just didn't think your body could do and was now going to be expected of you every single day for the next four years. And if you had a career beyond that, then beyond that, um, and then getting used to being coached in a manner that I was not used to being coached like, um, in that basically i like to tell people this, um, if you want to know what it was like playing for Rick Pitino, um, It was if you take the first 44 and a half minutes of the movie Full Metal Jacket, that's what it was like being coached by Rick Pitino. He was like that drill sergeant. It just was constantly on and you never knew when he was going to come at you and call you out on something. And you had to be ready to address it either never verbally. It was always a kind of yes or no, sir, but address it mentally and then physically. You had to address the problem, whatever it was.
2: Interesting. And you know, thanks for kind of talking us through Coach Patino, because I was going to ask about his kind of leadership of the program, what he was like. So mm. let's kind of dive into something else. You mentioned you just wanted to wear the the, the blue and white, right? Yeah. And so that first time you run onto the Rupp Arena court for a game, um, what what did that feel like for you?
1: So there were two times that happened. Once was in high school. I got to do it in high school in the Sweet 16 in Kentucky. and That was the first time it happened, but not as a Wildcat. So it, that one meant a lot. Because I don't think when I did it in high school, I didn't realize Kentucky was even in my future. I was hoping it was, but there was no guarantee at that point. But the first time, so there were two moments um, where I realized it kind of dawned on me that I was really a wildcat. The first one was that time I threw up in the weight room because what had happened right before that is Mr. Kitely knew I was coming um, to work out. And so he had my practice gear laid out for me in my locker room that had, or in my locker that had my name had, they had done this cool thing where you, they took um, in your locker was um, every uh, uh, the name of every person who had worn your number before you. And so right down here's my dad. So that was like this cool moment of there is, this is not like gear that I went out and bought. This is Kentucky basketball. This is, this is official Kentucky basketball practice gear that is mine that has been laid out for me. That was, that was kind of the moment I realized I was a Wildcat. Um, the funny thing is, is that the first time I ran out as a Wildcat to Rupp Arena it, it wasn't what I think you expected, because the thing is, is and this is another, this is a tribute to Coach Patino and how he prepares teams. I was more nervous for every high school game I had than I ever was for a Kentucky game. Now, part of that was Kentucky games early on in my career, I wasn't going to play anyway, so what's to get nervous about? Well, it wasn't really that so much as that the preparation that you have to do for an Athletes in Action game or for the National Championship game against Syracuse, under Coach Patino is exactly the same. There is no there's no deviation from the norm. We prep for every game the same way. And our our scouting reports, okay, to give you a a, a a a a difference, our scouting reports under Tubby Smith were one page front and back. Now we did a lot of film work. We did a lot of prep work in practice. But our scouting reports, the actual physical page they gave us with the plays of the other team, the the favorite moves of the individual players, front and back, one sheet of paper. Under Rick Pitino, they averaged 38 pages, the scouting reports. And you were expected, they were given to you two days before the game, and you were expected to know it all. As a matter of fact, there was one game I remember, I don't know if it was freshman or sophomore year, but where he was convinced no one had read the scouting report. And so after the game, that we had won by 20, by the way, after the game he was so mad because we had messed up on one, one part of the scout that he had a, he had an a, a impromptu quiz in the locker room, And would ask us questions about, okay, guys, on page number seven, on this particular player, what's his three-point shooting percentage? Well, no one knew. And, I mean, it it turned into an eruption after a 20-point win because the expectation was, you know. So my point is, there was so much to think about and worry about that the first time I ran out on that rep floor as a player with the warm-ups on, living my dream, it wasn't this, I can't believe I'm here moment. It was this, I've got a job to do. And yes, my job is probably going to be limited to the bench unless we beat AIA by 30 points and then I might get in. And that, that is kind of what happened early on in those seasons. Um, most games I didn't get in, but I had to prepare to be in the game. Whether I was going to be or not, I felt like I had to prepare. And then part of it too was I was a walk-on. So I felt like I had to do everything correctly or he was just going to get rid of me, right? So what I'm saying is when I ran out on that floor, I was thinking about one thing and that was the scouting report and my job to do during that game. I didn't have time to soak it in um, four years later on the national championship floor down in San Antonio. The last time out we had was the only moment I ever remember. Okay. Women stop. This is your last game as as a wildcat, your last game playing basketball. Cause I knew I wasn't going to the NBA. Um, and you're, you're, it looks like I think coming out last time out, we were, we had taken the lead and it looked like we were going to win, but I don't remember exactly. All I remember is walking out, seeing those little uh, uh, stickers on the court, the national fi- final four logo on this, on the Alamodome. And I remember that was the only moment in my career where I stopped and said, okay, wait a minute, look up. You're playing on national television, national championship game in front of 40,000 people here. And who knows how many people, millions uh, across the country and world. Stop and just soak this in. That's the only time I ever did it. Every other time I was worried, not necessarily nervous, but worried but, or preparing myself mentally for jobs. So my first time running out of rough, I don't remember.
2: Interesting. So your your freshman season there with the Cats it's it's a solid season. You guys are number one seed in the NCAA tournament, twenty eight and five. That season ends in the Elite Eight to North Carolina. So how would you characterize the vibe of, of the program heading into your sophomore season, the 1995-96 season, which is really what we're going to focus a lot on here? It ends yeah. up with the national title. But what's the team? What's the vibe of the team heading into that season?
1: So the vibe of the team is. Um... There's no other options other than the national championship. I think, which is funny because that's usually the vibe of the fans. The fans, no matter what what the expectations realistically are for any team, the expectations from BBN is a national championship. Now, as a former player and as a fan and as someone who, like we talked about earlier, has had this in, in my blood since I was born and really in my head since I was maybe in third or fourth grade, the realistic expectations are a Final Four, right? That's where I think Kentucky ought, ought to be a Kentucky basketball team ought to always be in the running for a national championship. And final four kind of proves that you, that's, that's where you were. So a successful season for me as a fan now is final four. If we win it all, we win it all. Great. But I don't, I don't, I don't think people understand how hard it is to win a national championship in Kentucky's 115 year history. We've only won eight. It's not like we've got one every two years, but the expectation is that you do. Um, but going into 96, there was a very different vibe because of what had happened. We, we were so close. We knew, so we knew we had the coach to get us there, right? Because everyone there had chosen. This wasn't like the the um, Unforgettables that stayed around during the NCAA um, uh, punishment. These were all guys that Coach Patino had recruited, all guys that Coach Patino wanted, uh, with the exception mm-hmm. of me, really. Um, and there were, as we know now, there were nine eventual NBA players on that team. And even though we didn't know there were nine eventual NBA players on the team, what we did know is that we, without a doubt, had the best team in the country. And that was that was internal. We knew that Um, we knew we worked harder than anyone else or no one worked harder than us. That was the thing we always said. No one's going to work harder than us. So you take that attitude and then you take the talent we have and the expectation from the coaching staff, from the fans, from um, from the team itself, Um, you know, without coaches around, there was a ton of pressure that was put on that team. The great thing about it is, and the great way Coach Petino coaches is as a team, you never really feel it because he's putting so much pressure on you, right? You don't feel worry about what the fans or what the rankings are. Um, And I hate rankings, rankings. I I deplore rankings, but especially preseason rankings, the stupidest thing in the world. Um, But he's putting so much pressure on you to get better as a team and better as an individual. You're not really worried about, you're not watching ESPN. I mean, we didn't, we weren't allowed to watch ESPN. We weren't allowed to listen to read newspaper, weren't allowed to get Sports Illustrated. We were not allowed to read our press clippings. And we didn't. Um, And that 96 year was hard because we were being talked about all over the places. We were coming into the season, preseason number one. Um, If it wasn't for Coach Cal and UMass, we would have probably stayed there all year. Um, But they bumped us off early. And then all of a sudden that kind of woke us up Um, and we realized, okay, just because we know we're good doesn't mean anyone's going to lay down for us. Um, So the vibe was, It's got to be this year, you know, and I think that was, that was the pressure coach Patino was whether intentionally or unintentionally putting on us, it's got to be this year. I mean, meaning the full, the full resurrection of the Kentucky program from the death penalty of the NCAA to national champion to get the six, the the, the sixth national championship. um, It's got to be this year. If it's not, I mean, it's it's, the the talent is here. Everything is here. It's got to be this year. So that was the vibe around all of us. The question mark, that all the players had though was how is he going to give us all playing time? I mean, so if you got nine guys that play in the NBA, they're going to play in the NBA, you got nine guys with egos who all want playing time on what is the preseason number one team in the country. That was the magic he had that year is he was, he kept us humble enough. And when I say us, I mean the other guys, I was, I was already humble because I was never getting off the bench anyway that year. Um, But it, it was, he kept everybody humble and hungry enough to compete with each other yet still love each other and be a team. And that, that's, that's kind of a hard thing to do.
2: How did he do that?
1: Gosh, you know what? I I think, and no one's ever asked me that. Um, so off the cuff, I think honestly by treating everybody the exact same way. Um, the next, well, actually, that was '96 was Ron Mercer's freshman year. So, so if Ron, I can really again, quickly,
2: let for those who aren't yeah. familiar, I want to just, you know, I, I'm a Chicago kid. I was I was a fan of that the the Kentucky in the '90s. Um, But for those who aren't familiar, I just want nine guys long NBA minutes, okay? You're talking Antoine Walker, Tony Delk, Ron Mercer. There's a freshman on that team named Nazi Muhammad, who Mm -hmm. doesn't even average six minutes a game but goes on to have an 18-year NBA career. So this team is stacked. There's only one ball. There's only five guys on the court time. So how did he – how did Patino make it work? Because, I mean, that could breed discontent.
1: Well, it, the thing is, is it what he did was it was kind of like it was us, meaning the team versus him. I mean, look, I can't overstate this enough. He is a difficult coach to play for. He is not easy and he knows that he's, and he's, he's intentional. So he treats us all the same. And it's like I said, we, we didn't have time, even though we felt the pressure of, man, this we've, we've got a chance to do something. You know, I don't think forty and zero ever came up back then. Maybe it did. Um, it certainly didn't come up the way it did a few years later under Cal with that one team in two thousand fourteen. I think it was. Um, but he just kept us all humble. I mean, I don't. There was no infighting on that team. There was no anger over who got minutes, at least that I could tell. As a and I and I was a I was an observer, right? I mean, I was barely getting into practice, much less getting real minutes in the game. As a matter of fact, that was the year, and I don't know if you know this or not. Coach Patino instituted a JV team first JV team in Kentucky since the seventies, right? He instituted it because he knew he had so much talent already there. And then you had Nazi Muhammad coming in. You had Oliver Simmons coming in. who was coming out of um, Nashville, Um, Ron Mercer coming in. Um, And, um, and then I think we may have had one other walk on, I'm not sure, but you, so he put this JV team together for guys like me and Nazi and Oliver Simmons. Um, oh, Jason Latham was another walk-on. Um, so we could have something to do. I mean, he told us that. Look, guys, I don't know how many minutes you're gonna get this year, but I want you playing ball. So we're gonna have a JV team. So we had like a 13, 13 game schedule. But he treated all of us, whether you were Ron Mercer, highly touted recruit that he desperately wanted, or whether you were walk-on Cameron Mills, who desperately wanted to be there. Um, he treated us all the same. And to, to the point, and to that to that point, Ron, like we all did, you have to adjust to the way coach coaches. It's not easy. Well, Ron was being coached the way coach coached us all. He was being yelled at. He was being degraded. He was being um, torn down and built up the way coach wanted him. Right. So Ron, and this gives you coach Patino's mindset. Ron apparently went to coach privately and told coach, I'm just, I don't just, I don't think I'm going to respond well to this kind of coaching and asked coach if he could go easier on him, not, not in a, Expectation way, but just don't yell at me as much, kind of thing. That that was that was that was what our our um our understanding of the meeting was like. But the only reason we know about the meeting between Coach and Ron when Ron asked Coach to go easy on him is because the very next practice, Coach told us all. I mean, it's like you know, Ron went privately to Coach for a reason. Coach decided to just lay Ron bare in front of us and say, "So guys, here's the way it's going to be. Um, Ron's asked me to coach him easier than I coach the rest of you, so that's what I'm going to do." Right. I mean, there were the mind games Coach Petino played were brutal until you made that jump or leap or step where you knew they're just mind games. He doesn't hate Ron Mercer. He is using this to let Ron Mercer know I'm not I'm not going to treat you any differently. than I'm going to treat these other guys. You either respond to my coaching or walk away, which had to be tough for coach, because I know I was there before Ron got there. He desperately, desperately wanted Ron Mercer. Um, And rightly so. Ron had 20 points in the national championship game his freshman year. So, um, but that's how he did it. He he kept us all humble by convincing us all that none of us were good enough to be there. I mean, I've I've never seen, you know, it was kind of different than Coach Smith. Coach Smith, there was some positivity. Coach, Coach Patino, there wasn't a lot of positivity. It was all about the mistakes you made. And you were expected as a man, as a player, to just take it and make your corrections and keep on ticking and understand that he didn't hate you, it just seems like he hates you, but he treated us all the same. And I think that's what that's what made it us against him. Like guys, we got to survive the season. Much a national championship, yeah, that'd be great. We got to survive the season. We have to survive the really, coach.
2: That really echoes comments we've heard previous on this podcast. We had Ryan Ford, who was a walk on on Coach Patino's '87 team at Providence, and went to the Final yeah. Four. So he's yeah. a walk on, and Ryan said, um, <laughs> Coach Patino told him the greatest respect I can give you is to coach you hard. So I'm not coaching you any different, you know? And, uh, so interesting. So, um, you hinted at this earlier, Kentucky, you're, you guys are preseason number one, but you fall to UMass in the second game of the season. That's the team John Calipari led by Marcus Camby. What did that game mean to that season? And how did that kind of define what was to come?
1: It meant everything to that season. Um, I firmly, firmly believe because of, um, because of that season, I firmly believe in the power of losing a game. Um, and it, it constantly gets me in trouble with, with UK fans. When I, when I have my own radio show or when, when I do media interviews, it constantly gets me in trouble with fans because, you know, even ex-players, I've gotten arguments with ex-players who say, you don't have to lose a game, um, you know, to learn lessons. And that's true. You don't. But you learn your lessons much quicker when you, you lose a game. important. Absolutely. Rail and you know, Michael Jordan talks about that all the time. I mean, you have to – the worst thing that can happen for a team – and to me, to some degree, this is what happened to the 2000, I think the 38 and 1 Kentucky team under Calipari. The worst thing, I was begging, I was begging for us not to, you don't want to go out and intentionally lose, right? I mean, you don't, no one does that. Um, but th- th- there's an interesting story when we get to talking about the Mississippi State game in the SEC tournament with the 96 team. Um, you don't go out and intentionally lose a game. But I was begging, hoping, pleading, praying for that team, that 38 and 1 team to lose in the SEC tournament. Because there there is nothing better for a team that is undefeated than a loss right before it really starts, because trigger everything else in college basketball, everything else is pregame. It is all preseason until you get to March first, basically, really, until you get to the second week of March, which is when the tournament starts, everything else nothing else i mean and again, it goes back to why I hate rankings. you ever notice that the number one team in April? is always the national championship team. And all of a sudden those preseason rankings and those last, whoever's ranked number one in the end of February doesn't matter. It, what matters is the team that wins the championship always happens to be voted the number one team by the coaches or the AP when the next ranking comes out. So that's clearly all that matters. And everything else is preparation for those six games you're going to play in the NCAA tournament. Those are the only games that matter. So everything leading up to that is just practice. It's just practice. And if you have to lose a game like we did to UMass, that very first second, or like you said, say a second game of the season. um, Okay, so we lost. It shook the whole team because we weren't supposed to lose. So what does that make us do? Okay, so coach is right. Coach has been telling us we're not as good as we think we are. And now we've just proven it. We've just proven it by going on, facing what? I guess they were number two, weren't they? We were number one. They were number two. and Uh, they, um,
2: They were up there. They were top 10.
1: Yeah, and they handed it to us. Um, and then, but then the result of that loss, we don't lose for another 28, 29 games yeah, and we don't 27 lose twenty-seven straight wins after that. 27 straight wins. Thank you. And, and those games, I don't remember any of them being close. I think there were, no, there most of them were blowouts.
2: Of those 27 wins, only two teams managed to keep it within single digits at the final buzzer. Oh really? Okay. I mean, that's, 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 why, that's why I like having
1: a, that's why I like having a historian to talk to. You get, <laughs> get those kinds of stats. The story. But I mean, the resident the resident that's historian. pretty
2: nuts to think you win 27 in a row. And 25 of those are by double digits. And our,
1: and you're, we, and you're our not average, playing cupcakes. No, we're playing SEC schools, which were, I mean, South Carolina was good. Florida was good back in those days. Um, and then, yeah, no, Coach Patino, he believed in having a few cupcakes on the schedule. But most, he wanted to play good teams because you don't get better. Like, at this level, you shouldn't need a win to restore your confidence, right? I mean, you shouldn't. I mean, you should. at, at this level, a loss should make you angry. It should make you double down, buckle down, start listening better and realizing you're not as good as you thought you were, which is exactly what, that ha- what happened in 96 with that first UMass game. It's all of a sudden, whatever comments were being said about us publicly and nationally, it didn't matter anymore. We just got beat. So maybe this whole Kentucky team's a fraud. And that chip on our shoulder? I mean, think about this, this, this team that won. I mean, I think our average margin of victory was like 25 points a game. All because of that UMass game. Because it, we played the rest of that season with a chip on our shoulder, and chips chips on shoulders do great things for teams.
2: You know, before we signed on today, uh, you and I were talking off the record, and and I talked. I some of my research show that some people refer to this team as the professionals, but you said mm-hmm. there was a different name for this team. What was that name?
1: It, you know, it's funny because I I'd never heard us until you 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 and I talked about. It, I'd never heard us called the professionals. I get why we are now or. Because of how many guys made made it to that level, because um, even though you were nine guys that played in the NBA, there were more than nine guys on the team that played professionally. Um, but I the, and I'm blanking on the nickname for us there, but that was going through every Kentucky team that made the or Final Four got the a nickname.
2: Undeniables, right?
1: Okay. I think it was the Undeniables. Um, I'm, I, I'm probably gonna it's gonna I'm gonna be angry at myself when I look it up after we're done. I'm like, oh, of course that's what it was. Why wasn't that on the top of my? Book? Um, uh, up top of my mind, but that's basically what it was. It was the uh, oh, uh, maybe it was the Untouchables. That's what it was. It was the Untouchables. Um, so that was the name we we knew. But that you don't get a nickname until the season's over, at least. And all the nicknames the Kentucky teams got in the '90s that got they were all the Un something. So you had the Unforgettables, uh, the Untouchables, um, the '97 team that got to the uh, championship game were the Unbelievables. And then when Tubby's first year, that's when the Uns went away, and we were known as the Comeback Cats.
2: Gotcha. All right, man, I want to take some high-level views of this 96 season um, and, and ask you about that program a little bit. Who was the engine of that team? Who made it all go? Anthony Epps. Why, and why Beyond.
1: so? Oh, because Anthony, first of all, he had more heart than anybody on the team. He was getting – so at the beginning of that year, if you go back and look at the early games, you had Tony Delt playing point guard. You had Jeff Shepard playing point guard. Both of those guys are twos. They're not ones. They're twos. Um Coach did not trust Anthony, who was a junior, I believe, at the time. Coach did not trust him with the team yet, for whatever reason. But it wasn't going to work out with Shep playing point, with, um, with um, uh, Derek playing point, uh, or I'm sorry, with uh, Tony Duck playing point, or, or Derek. I mean, there, the coach went through several iterations early that season trying to find someone, all right, who's going to be the point guard. And if it's Tony Doug, then how do I have, have Tony bring up the floor, initiate the offense, and then make sure I'm getting Tony his shots? Because Tony was coming, I mean, Tony was a scorer. Um, so he didn't, and then you have Wayne Turner as a freshman that year. I've forgotten that was Wayne's freshman year too. So Wayne Turner, who was recruited as a freshman, but he was still a freshman. And this is back in the days when you you had juniors and seniors on the team that not only deserved playing time, were deservedly deserving playing time, meaning Wayne wasn't there yet. Um, and, uh, he could handle the ball, but he wasn't there leadership wise, but Anthony was, but Anthony had to prove that to coach during, I'm going to say the first two months of that season. Um, and coach eventually trusted him. And it was that trust that coach gave to Anthony that, that made Anthony globally kind of into the leader that we already knew he was because Anthony was the one. To me, this is not necessarily what point guards have to do, but it's what your captains have to do and your leaders have to do of the team. Whether it's the coach says you're the leader or you just take on leadership of a team, is you have to be the coach on the floor. So the way coach coaches us, you know, and I told you how difficult Coach McKenna was to play for. Anthony was that difficult to play for as a point guard. Anthony took, he he did not suffer fools and did not suffer mistakes. He was on you, if you made a mistake during practice, or you weren't working hard during practice or you were mailing it in during practice. He was on you most of the time before coach was. And that is actually who Anthony is. That wasn't who he became in 96. He was already that person, but it's when coach finally turned the team team over to him. And now we've got this guy who we all fear we did. We were all afraid of Anthony. Um, and we all, because of his work ethic respected him. So now he's our leader. And so you've got this guy who isn't worried about his points. He's not. Um, He was only worried about leading the team and us being the toughest, mentally toughest team, um, which is what Coach Patino's goals were. So Anthony was the one that Anthony was the engine. Now, we had other scorers. We had uh, more talented players. Anthony was not one of those guys that played in the NBA from that team. But Anthony was the engine.
2: Interesting. Was he also the unsung hero of the team or would you point to someone else?
1: No, Anthony, because again, Anthony didn't get the credit because like, let's take Ron Mercer. I mean, again, national championship game as a freshman, he comes out, because he wasn't averaging. And he was a blue-collar, and he
2: was a blue-blood recruit too. I
1: mean, Yes, but he wasn't, his his freshman year, he wasn't like, it wasn't like he was averaging 18, 17 a game and then had 20 in a national championship game. He was averaging maybe, and I'm guessing, I mean, you you, you may have it in front of you by chance, but I'm thinking he may have been averaging 8 to 10 or something, but then blew up in the national championship game with 20. Right. So you've got that. You've got Walter McCarty. You've got Derek Anderson. You've got Mark mean, You've got Antoine Walker. You've got all these guys, any one of whom. And it's one of the reasons I love those late 90s teams that I was on is you didn't know who you had to stop if you're scouting for us. Right. Because Mark had 20 point games. Walter had 20 point games. T D definitely did. Derek did. Ron did. Um, Anthony had a couple of 20. I mean, you just don't know who you're going to have to shut down. You can't scout and say, guys, this is the guy we have to shut down. You can't do that with us because then Ron Mercer is going to blow up for 20. Um, in a game that we actually, and I know we'll get there, but we didn't play very well against Syracuse. We we went back and reviewed it a few years ago at our 90, 96 reunion, 20-year reunion. We First time, first time we ever watched that game together as a team. And we were appalled at how we played. We played terribly against Syracuse in that national championship game. Isn't that crazy? But, but- yeah, yeah, it, it really was. We were like twenty we were, years
2: later. You you can't enjoy it.
1: You're you're no. like
2: analyzing it and critical of it. That's interesting. Well, it,
1: well, I, I think it was enjoyable because yeah. the, the reason it was enjoyable is number well, one, you know we the were outcome. on a yacht. <laughs> well, yes, that's that's a big part of it. We were also on a yacht um, in the in uh, um, in South Beach, Miami, at a reunion that Coach Patino put together for us. So we're all just enjoying ourselves. Coach Petino's not yelling at anybody, which that's again, it's the first time that 14 so we had 15 guys on the team 14 came to the reunion um it's the first time in 20 years those 14 guys had been together and been together with their coach and it was odd that he wasn't yelling at us i think we all had conversations about it like don't you just feel like he's getting ready to erupt at any moment everyone's like yeah i don't know what he's gonna get mad at but we just feel like yes and he never did he was loose he was so yeah we're watching the game but we're watching the game and it's funny we hadn't watched the championship game like that that's what Coach Big is Coach Patino is big on scouting and big on uh film. Um and he did not we would there was a couple of games we would literally we were watching the game film literally an hour after the game, right? Uh we lost to Louisville, I think, in that ninety-four-95 season, and we bust to Louisville it was the only place we bust to. Um we we're watching game film on the way back. It was a loss. It was a very uncomfortable plus ride. Um but yeah, I mean, it, it, he's big on film. So we're all sitting there watching the 96 game. And it, we're all realizing by the, by the end of the first half, how do we win this game? We're playing horrible. Um, and then we're all kind of wincing every mistake that's made because Coach is sitting there watching it with us. And we're just expecting him to blow up at us about, you know, this turnover, this turnover. Why, why aren't you running? Why aren't you hustling? And it never happened. which So that made it enjoyable. Um, but it, it was funny watching that game because we played so bad. And we didn't realize it until 20 years later.
2: Well, you didn't cover the spread, so uh, <laughs> what a, it's actually one of the biggest spreads in history. gamblers! I, I think it was, was 13 it really? what or was it? Yeah, it was one of the. I think it was thirteen. It was one of the biggest spreads. See, in and that's Texas
1: even spread. amazing, right? Syracuse beat. No, see, we beat UMass, Syrac- didn't we? Syracuse beat Mississippi State. Yeah. Um, and we beat UMass, but still, they were they were a Jim Bayheim team. I mean, yeah. of course, every Syracuse team's been a Jim Bayheim team, haven't I mean. they? Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it just it was it was. I didn't realize we didn't cover the spread. And I didn't realize it was that big either.
2: Yeah. So you know, I want to talk about one game in that twenty-seven win streak. The nineteenth win. It's an 88-73 nationally televised win over Arkansas at Rupp Arena. That game is known uh, not for beating Arkansas. It's known for something else, and that's producing the first game with these denim uniforms.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> so, see, isn't that funny? I don't remember. That's when the, I don't remember that the, that being. The well, denim we know uniform. it because nineteen
2: um, coming out with them soon. So let's get to it. What was your take on the denim uniforms?
1: So the story behind because the because people is, hated them. Yeah, yeah, I don't fans read, did not read, like them. No, they love them now because of what the team did, right? Yeah, but yeah. even then, I st- I, I, it's funny when like some you know a lot of the BBM blogs around here will put up like they'll do, they'll do the best uniforms in the history of Kentucky basketball, and a lot of times the denims make it, but I think it's because of the association with what that team did. Yep. Yeah. So the story behind the denims um, that's funny to me is. Course, we were with um Apex, which was a division of Converse. So we were a cons mm-hmm. uh, Converse team. Um, I think that was maybe been the last year we were Converse team. Um, but anyway, so we were Converse team and I don't know who came up with the idea of denims. I've heard it was um it may have been um um well shoot, I'm blanking on his name in the moment. Um, but he eventually was at Nike and was our Nike rep. Um sam uh, newton's son uh martin newton uh, and, that uh, is yeah, so, the
2: research i have too yeah, yes it was yes yeah, so newton's martin son, martin newton
1: the- it, it, i don't know whose idea it was but cons came out with them but the first prototype of these jerseys literally were were made they weren't completely i mean they had some mesh in them they but were they, the denim. Denim, they were denim they were real <laughs> denim so we had a prototype that was sent to us for a practice, because Coach was adamant we're gonna everything, everything is prepped. You don't take a chance with this kind of stuff or with anything as far as Coach Dino you know, is concerned. So two two prototypes were sent in uh a, a set for Tony Delk and a set for Walter McCartney. They were they were our two seniors and our leaders. Um Anthony was our leader, but these were our two senior captains. And um, so they put them on for a practice. These uniforms weighed 10 pounds more each after practice than they did before and they were immediately no absolutely not because again everything with coach Fatino is weight you're you know some guys needed to be heavier but that was physical that he wanted to put on muscle so adding 10 pounds to a team that runs and guns and presses for 40 minutes a game no that's not going to fly so he's basically sent cons back to to the to the um, to the store and said redo them because we're not wearing this nonsense and then what eventually came out was uniforms that were painted to look like denim. They were just completely mesh. There was no, there's no real denim on them. If it is denim, it's like the weakest, smallest. I mean, because he wasn't going to prove anything that was going to weigh more than a usual uniform would weigh at the end of practice when it's soaked through with sweat and 10 pounds of just of sweat. That's not dissipating. That's just soaking up into denim that wasn't going to fly. So, um, but the funny thing is I, I remember the denim. I've still got one of the greatest things ever is after you're done playing, Mr. Kotley calls you in and gives you every uniform you ever had at Kentucky. And I've got all of them sitting back there in my basement. And um, I've got my denims back there. And um, so I know we wore denim, and I know they're a big deal. I've got my denim shoes that came with them. Um, but I did, I, I did not remember that they were that Arkansas game. And the funny thing is I remember very little about that Arkansas game. Um, I remember more about the SEC Arkansas game, or SEC tournament Arkansas game, but that was the year before. So it's, yeah. it's funny how you the things that stand out to you are these – Marathon games are amazing games, but may not be in the line of succession of doing something great. So it's funny that I didn't remember that that was the denim game or the first denim game.
2: The denim game, yes. And, and Arkansas wore their own uniforms that day. But uh, we're gonna have that's, a story up soon on the nineteen nine blog about the denim uniforms, how they came to be, and it matches a lot of what perfect. you said here. So it's yeah. good thing good. to know. My good, good that I, yeah, the one of so.
1: yeah, it's yeah, right. We're con, we're confirming it. <laughs>
2: Uh, That's good when you're a historian. So um, (laughs) let's get back to the season. Um, In the SEC SEC championship game, Mississippi State pulls off a rather stunning upset. That's a good Mississippi State team, by the way. But they hand you guys your second loss of the season. Uh, That Mississippi State squad is so good it ends up in the Final Four. So they weren't flouches. What was the locker room like after that loss? Silence, anger, shock? Relief. Relief? And and relief.
1: Because, well, number one, we were expecting – a destruction of the locker room, right? I mean, because we were expecting Coach Patino, because that was the game not only that he took Antoine out about midway through maybe the first half, and Antoine did not go back in. And so that's why some people like to say clearly um, Coach Patino you know, threw the game, right? Because he wanted us to have a loss. Well, he didn't throw the game because Coach Petino, you know, It's not in his DNA to not to not want to win and to not. I mean, do everything he can to win. Um, we had games that we won, and I've already shared one story with you. But we we weren't off the hook just because we won a game. There, if if we won a game, but we did, he was big on Winston Churchill's quote, "Deserving victory." And if we won a game, but we didn't deserve to, in his eyes, the locker room was a nightmare. Right. Now, when I say nightmare, I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like throwing things, though. I think there were occasionally there was a marker thrown here and there, um, but it was just he was on everybody. He was on the coaches. He was on the managers. He was on the team. He was on individuals that didn't even play and never got on the off the bench. Um, and that's what we expected when we came. I remember, I remember walking into the locker room um, after that game. We were in was that New Orleans, I think um, in the in the um, um, And we're walking back to the locker room. Those are long walks, right? Those locker rooms and those big domes are not close to the, to the court. They are, you're talking some, it feels like a half mile really. Um, So we had this long walk and everybody's kind of, it's not that we're down that we lost. We're nervous because we don't know what's going to happen in that locker room. You know, I mean, it really is. There's a lot of fear under coach Patino. We don't know what's going to happen. And we got in that locker room and he had a smile on his face. He was relieved and that made us all relieved because he immediately got up and said, I mean, there was no, there was no yelling about the game. There was very little conversation about the game. Um, and he, he said, and I think I've heard him say um, before that, that he, what he said to us after the game, and I don't remember this and I may be making this up because I know this was his attitude. Basically guys that losing this game is, you know, it, this is what's going to catapult, catapult us to win the national championship. This game, it, it wasn't that we wanted to lose, but it's important that we did, because for the same reason that losing that UMass game early in the year was important, is that we had run off. Would you say twenty-seven in a row? Yeah, twenty-seven in a row. So guess what happens when you've got all this talent and all this ego, and now you've got the whole world. And we had been at that point because we'd run off twenty-seven. We'd been number one for a, for a while. Um, you've got all this expectation now. Well, all of a sudden you start to believe your press clippings. You start to believe you're invincible. Yeah, UMass got us early in the season, but that doesn't count the second game of the season, right? This Now we are the team that we are, and nobody has come close to us in 27 games. So you lose a game like that to Mississippi State, which even though they were good enough to get to the Final Four, they weren't like this perennial – they weren't expected to do that. They certainly weren't expected to beat us in the SEC Championship game, but they did. And so now what does that do to a bunch of uh, cocky 18-, 19-, 20-, 21-year-olds? It resets everything. Oh, now we're scared. Now that chip is back. But there's also this level of fear of we can't just go out, especially now because now it's one and go home, lose and go home. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you don't get, and that's why I go back to, I I, I don't ever, I don't ever mind a loss in the SEC tournament. I want to win the SEC tournament, but I don't ever mind a loss anymore. I mean, especially if it's a good team. I mean, you go back, one of Cal's teams, I remember, I think it was um, maybe 2013. Um, it, it was when we got back, we we got to the national championship game. It was one of those teams under Cal. And we lost eight games that year. And then in the championship game of the SEC tournament, we lose, I think, to Florida, but there was something different in that team in that game. And then all of a sudden we run off five in a row. And we get to the national championship game. And I don't I remember who beat us. It may have been um UConn. Um, but all of a sudden we're like, this wasn't a team that was supposed to, after losing eight games in the year, they weren't supposed to get there. Ninety sixteen was supposed to get there. So after a loss to Mississippi state, everything resets. And all of a sudden there's that guys, we can't, no, one's going to lay down for us. We got to. We got to go back. We got to work and we got to prepare for the next five games. Or yeah. as we always said, the next game, that was the key. The next. I always
2: game. think that that resets a key word because I think it shows like how dialed in you got to be to achieve. So let's get into the yeah. tournament then. And we're, we're almost wrapping up here on this 96 Kay. season here with Cameron Mills, you guys are a number one seed and you, and it, it, it you guys play like it. Uh, so you guys smash San Jose State by 38 yep. opening round. I, I got I, I to play in that
1: game. That's how bad blood that was.
2: <laughs> smash Virginia Tech by 24. Smash Utah by 31. That's a good Utah team too. Yeah. Then you smash Wake Forest and Tim Duncan by 20 to reach the final four. Yep. That sets up a rematch, a rematch with UMass. So what do you recall most about the lead up to that game? You get another shot at UMass. And then how would you describe that game?
1: We always said, um, because again, there's this attitude, the Cochino sets of it's the next game, the next game. Okay. This game is over and the next game. That's all we're focused on. Right. We don't relive the past. Um, We focus on the next game. And with that attitude comes the attitude of there's no such thing as a revenge game, right? You don't, if, if revenge motivates you or if you have to have revenge on your mind to motivate you, then you're not properly motivated in the first place because every game should be the same. So if you're playing, you know, for, there was a there was a team that Coach Pitino used to use as kind of his cupcake team that I don't even know if it existed called Illinois Circle. You're from Chicago. Is there a, is there a Bill, school called Illinois uh, Circle? My
2: alma mater, actually, University of Illinois Chicago. <laughs> yes.
1: what, was it called Illinois Circle? It or was Chicago called circle? circle in its early history. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. Okay, so so your team, your, so I'm sorry, sorry about this. It's but named after oh, no, it's okay.
2: Uh, it's named after an interchange, a highway interchange called the Circle, which is right next so to campus.
1: That's that was the team Coach would always use to say, guys. Um, he would he would always threaten to send us there to play, especially Antoine and Nazi, Right, I'm going to send you back to, to Illinois Circle is what he always said. Um, but that was the that was the team that like it didn't matter if if we, if we were playing um, athletes in action or you know which were preseason games um, and games we were certainly supposed to win or we were playing the international championship game. Everything is the same. So when we got our second chance at at UMass. The attitude amongst the coaching staff, there was never this, we're going to go out there and get our revenge. That was That's never mentioned. I don't think Coach Pino you know, has ever, before a game in prepping for a game, ever used the word revenge. I don't think. Now, afterwards, he might in the locker room. You know, it, when he's kind of feeling himself and proud of us, he might. But he's not going to before. But I, I really do feel like there were a lot of guys on the team that felt like they owed UMass something. Um, as a matter of fact, I did a documentary on the 96 team, um, which I'll send you, by the way. Um, uh, a few years ago, actually, I used our, our, um, our reunion in Miami beach as kind of the setting for the whole documentary. And, um, I remember in the interviews with my teammates and I wasn't conducting them. I got an actual real journalist to do it for me, um, who knew knew what they were doing. But in the interviews, a lot of the guys did talk about feeling like they owed UMass something, which I don't remember at the time, but it came out 20 years later that they all felt that way. Um, but I don't remember anything other than, you know what, this is another team. This is a team we know we no know can beat us. So you add the loss to Mississippi state, who's also in the final four now, and then we've lost it. So the two teams we've lost to are in this little four game to 14 tournament now. Um, so it, even more, it kind of just, it refocuses you. It's like, there's no guarantee here. Everyone may think because we ran, ran out 27 in a row that we're going to win it all, but there's no guarantee at all because the two losses we have this year, both of those teams are in this tournament. We're going to have to play one or both of them. Um, but all I remember is that it was a different game. It was maybe we had more confidence. Maybe we were more focused in the first time. But we had we were definitely we were definitely prepared to play UMass that second time more so than I would say we were the first time we played them that year.
2: Yeah, it's an eighty-one seventy-four victory over UMass, and so you guys head into the, the national title game against Syracuse, and you're a fourteen-point favorite, not a thirteen-point, fourteen-point favorite, which is incredible is spread a for a championship yeah, game. It just shows. Thing. That shows how the awesome that Kentucky team was. And that's not to say Syracuse wasn't game for it. But um, So you don't cover the spread that night, but you do win the national title with a seventy. You seem
1: bitter the about the fact that we didn't cover the spread. Well, no, you seem I, bitter I didn't about bet. That. When did, I you was, have, uh, did you have money on the game? I was
2: 15 years old. If I did,
1: it was probably 2 bucks. <laughs> um,
2: but, I mean, I think, you know, I just mentioned the spread because, I mean, it just shows how – awesome that kentucky team was and it, just it, how it's much funny. respect it had i mean
1: it's funny how much of course the spreads mentioned now because sports betting is so much more legal than yeah. it was um but it, it was the, the the spreads never came up in, in it, i and would I have a lot known the spread say, when i was 15 years old To be honest. well but i'm what i'm saying is when we played like the coaches and staff never used the spread as like okay you know as any kind of preparation or any kind of commute we we weren't supposed to even know what they were and as a result most of us didn't
2: yeah, but you guys knew you were the favorite. Let's be honest. Oh yeah, um, I mean, you guys had a sense like this yeah. Sarasu team is good, but we we this is the team we got to beat.
1: Yeah, I would say we definitely had the feeling of this is the team we got to beat. But I don't know, and this is where you you run into this 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 juxtaposition of being confident and overconfident, right? Of feeling like okay, we're the team to beat, but not taking your opponent lightly. And there there is a fine line there where overconfidence is what gets you beat by UMass' the first, first game of the season or second game of the season and what gets you beat by a Mississippi State and SEC championship game. That's overconfident. Um, having to learn that, okay, it doesn't matter. This team, we may be a 13, 14-point favorite. As I said, we didn't know that. Um, but this is a team that has gotten to the national championship. They've won five in a row, too. Um, they're here. Now, if they win, they're national champions. Nobody, Our season's basically forgotten about, um, especially in Kentucky lore, um, so it didn't matter. I think we went out there, we may have known we were the favorite, but we that if, if that ever entered anyone's mind, it was immediately shot out because we knew yeah. we were capable of being beat. And why couldn't this team beat us? We had to go especially with that stupid two three zone that they play constantly. There was more prep work done for that than there was any other team with the exception of Bobby Knight's Indiana teams during my career. I mean, we would we would Prep for Bobby Knight's motion. We would we prep for Jim Beahan's two three zone like we prep for no other team because they were so perfect at playing those. In Syracuse's case, defense. In Indiana's case, that 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 motion offense that Bobby Knight ran. They ran it. It's all they ran. So they ran it perfectly, um, and so we had to prep and prep and prep for those to to try to match their perfection of uh, defending it. And in the case of uh, UMass playing against their defense,
2: and so. That Syracuse game, that victory, national title, what memory of that day sticks with you all these years later? Something pregame, something during the game, something postgame. So
1: pregame, yeah, none of of them – well, I think one of them certainly had the outcome on the game. But um, I think Coach Bennett, Winston Bennett, former Kentucky player, um, coached with Coach P at Boston, um, and coached with him. He was there during my three years uh, as Coach Patino, is one of his assistants. He um he came down for we all met in whatever hotel we were staying at in the Meadowlands. We all meet in our, our meeting room, right? Everybody down here at this room at such and such o'clock, which literally, which actually means 15 minutes before the set time. So if it says, all right, guys, we're meeting down here at six, all right, that actually means we're meeting down here at 5 45, but we're all gonna meet in this room. Coaches, everybody that's gonna go get on the bus and go over to um uh the Meadowlands or the the gym. And um Coach Bennett walked down from the national championship game he always dressed well, but that particular game, he had saved his like mafia pinstripe. <laughs> I mean, it was a thick he went pinstripe. Yankee on ya. He did. He, he walked in and it was so showy, this suit he had on that. I mean, we're in this, we're all in this room and we're feeling, we know what's coming in the next few hours, either major elation or major disappointment. disappointment. And all of a sudden he walks in wearing this I'm gonna call it a clown suit, but it was just, I mean, it was it was a nice looking suit, but it was so it was it was oh, so like tough. you got into season. he knows he's gonna be on national TV tonight. He knows, even his assistant, he's gonna be on national TV tonight. And it just broke the room and everybody starts laughing. It's, you know, it just kind of broke the tension. And I don't know if that helped or hurt, but it did feel good in that moment to everyone who just the room was just quiet because we knew what was getting ready to happen, good or bad. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's relax for a minute. Um, so that memory stands out. Tony Delk uh, getting a four point play towards the end of the game, kind of, I uh, kind of icing the game really, um, uh, getting fouled in the corner, um, shooting a three, hitting the three, and then going to the foul line making that shot. But when he hit that three, I don't remember at what point in the game. I know it was the second half. I know it was it was kind of as we were pulling away, or you know, it was looking more and more like we were going to win. Um, but I just remember the bench, which of course I was, I was that was my bench. I was on it more than anybody was. Um, but I remember the bench just kind of erupting. I mean, it, and just kind of Tony is, he's been knocked over. The foul was called. He's hit his three and he's just kind of, everybody just kind of embraces him on the bench and everybody's kind of whipping him with towels and that kind of thing. And so I remember that moment. Um, and then there was this cool moment that it's caught on TV. And so I didn't see it live. I saw it in the after play. Um, of course I've watched this game in the 97 game and the 98 championship games multiple times in the last 20, 25 years. But there was a scene where as the clock ticked down and Coach Patino realized we had won, right? Um, you saw this. He immediately went to his assistant coaches and embraced them first, right? Which is what a lot of coaches do. Um, but knowing how much – because he's as hard on his assistants as he is on his players. He really is. Um, and he will berate them in front of his players. Like um, he's, not, he's not afraid to dig into his coaches if he doesn't feel like they're getting the job done. So he knows he's hard on them. So to see him grab Jim O'Brien, who, of course, coaches Celtics and the Pacers, um, Delray Brooks, um, and then Coach Bennett. So the four of them kind of had this walking embrace that uh, CBS caught perfectly on video. And you just see this elation and relief and release on Coach Patino because this was his first. Um, This was um, what he had been hired to do. This is the reason winning 96 is the reason he left in 97. Because his job, he is a he is a um, resurrector. That's what he does. He takes teams. That's what he's done most of his career. Now, I, I think it's I think it's fair to say it's what he's doing at Iona. I mean, clearly, I don't know what it, the expectations at Iona are, or, or realistically, but he's been to the NCAA tournament what twice now with them, mm-hmm. or, or once at least. Um, but that's what he does. He takes teams that are at their worst point, and he rebuilds them. Um, and you can make the argument that he he was he had more success doing that in college than he did anywhere, um, than he did in the NBA. Certainly, I don't know if you throw the Celtics in there or not. Um, if he left them better than he when he got there. But as a college coach, that's what he does. He takes teams at their worst. He's hired to rebuild them into what, and that's what he did here. It's exactly what he did at Louisville. Um, and you know, there you can argue over the the ramifications of the banner, you know, them having to take down their national championship and that, but he still got them there. he he rebuilt the Louisville basketball program into what Louisville basketball should be. Um, That's exactly what it did at Kentucky. So when we won in 96, it was the culmination of his job done at Kentucky. This is, this is, this is what I was hired to do. And then also the part of him being such a freak for college basketball and basketball in general, this was his first championship. He got close with Providence, got to the final four. He'd gotten close with Kentucky in 93. Um, It could be argued in 94 the year before, you know, if we beat um, uh, North Carolina, maybe we win, but now it's done. Job's done. And there was this release and relief you saw in his eyes that just made you feel good for him. In spite of all that he yelled at you about, you were just happy for him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you were the brainchild and you mentioned this earlier, but you were the brainchild of an award-winning documentary in the 96 squad called the team. Mm -hmm. Um, Hope people go out, rent it, watch it, get their hands on it. What spurred your involvement with that? And, and what were, what were you, why were you eager to share um, the story of that team and, and, why did that team story need to be shared?
1: I don't know that it, well, I don't know that it need, needed to be shared, but there was an opportunity to share it in an interesting way. Um, so when I got done playing in, at UK, um, if you can't tell from our interview, I'm a talker um, and, and, and I tell long stories and we'll get off on tangents. Um, so I have no doubt that this, uh, this that our, our time is going to be edited down to the proper length because I know I've probably gone over. Um, but I, I got involved in the media when I got done playing ball. Um, started doing post-game radio shows for UK, not the network, but locally in radio. Eventually, I had my own radio show and really always appreciated and loved our local media here in Lexington because I played high school basketball here and then, of course, UK. So these were a lot of guys who covered me and my teammates, but I'd, I'd grown to know them and love a lot of them over the years, especially a guy named Dick Gabriel, who was a long time on Channel, uh, our CBS affiliate here in Lexington, Channel 27. Um, Dick was the sports director there and sports anchor there for a long time. And I really liked him. And he also did radio. And so I kind of put myself under him as kind of like, okay, he's going to mentor me because I wanted to be my, my dream job um, one day is I, I want to do uh, color commentary for the UK network for the basketball. Um, and so I knew I had a lot of work to get there. And um, so I, I just kind of started doing media stuff. Well, I did that for years. I had my own radio show. And then, in I guess 2016 it would have been. Um, someone said something to Coach Pino about a reunion. He said, "Absolutely, we're going to South Beach." He flew us all down to South Beach, paid for, paid for everything. We went golfing. We went out on yacht trips over on the you know intercoastal waterway. It was this amazing three day trip where, like I said, all four, 14 guys from this team were there, and which just made it amazing. And Dick Dick Gabriel and I were talking, and, and um, so at some point somebody came up with the idea of like well, you all going to have three days in Miami. The backdrop's going to be pretty incredible because it's South beach or Miami or wherever we were. Um, but it's going to be in Florida. Somebody needs to take their camera down there. And I think it was Dick wanting to take his channel 27 and get some, you know, some footage of the, it's basically just do a story on the reunion for the local news. And then as he and I started talking, I'm like, we ought to do more than that. And so I love documentaries and I, I mean, I absolutely adore documentaries. And I thought, well, I've got Dick's expertise. There's another guy I know here who who is an amazing cinematographer and basically director producer uh, named Jason, Jason Epperson. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to see if the guys will let me do this. So I basically sent all the guys an email, including Coach P said, would you guys mind if I brought down a, a camera crew? And would you guys be willing to sit with for some interviews and let them get some footage? I'm going to try to put together a documentary. Um, and everybody was on board. And so we've got footage of we've got I don't know if it makes the documentary. But we've got footage of us watching the Syracuse game and laughing at ourselves. Um, we've got some of the best interviews. And it's not because of me. I'm, look, I, I was executive producer, which you being in media know how this works. Executive producer is in charge of thanking people and um, collecting awards. That's all I did. Right, it, I, I thanks people, and I and I got to collect. I got to walk up and get get the award that we won, uh, which was Sports Documentary of the Year for Kentucky AP broadcasters um, for that documentary. But um, man, everybody, we 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 put so Dick's idea was let's put Walter McCarty right beside Tony Dell, and let's interview them both at the same time. Let's interview um, uh, Ron Mercer and Derek Anderson together on the, on a couch. We've got these great like three shot interviews with the the members of this team. Talking about things that I didn't realize were going on because again, these are guys that played I was over on the bench. So even though I was watching everything, we got we got to, I got I got a sense of, of what was really going on in their heads through this documentary. Um, don't know that it needed to be told, but it was so much fun doing um, so much fun that we actually did the very next year. We did one on the 98 team um, and that one actually got, in, got nominated for an Emmy.
2: Yeah. And, you know, here we go, Cameron, we're we're wrapped up here. I mean, we talked about the first half of your career. I hope maybe we can have you on later on um, to talk at the 99 podcast, talk about the second half of your career, because you, you've you had a lot of fun joking here saying, hey, I was I was just a bench guy the first two years Well the last two years you weren't. And, yeah. uh, you, you gotta, your, yours is a great story, man. You earn a scholarship. You just wanted to wear the blue and white, but you become a major contributor. And so maybe we can have you on here in the future. We'll talk about uh, the transition from Patino to Tubby Smith. Sure. Um, the shot heard round the bluegrass against Duke, which I, I've read, you have a very interesting take on too. So, uh, you got it's overplayed and overblown. Title. Uh, another national title another documentary and you've done a lot of spirited work beyond the basketball court too mm-hmm. so i think that's important to know so perhaps we can have you on again down the line i'd love to
1: yeah well love
2: to. awesome well thanks so much cameron for your time much appreciated
1: thank you Josh.
0: thank you for listening to the Nineteen Nine podcast if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast make sure you do and while you're at it leave us a rating or review. five stars only like the basketball camp We also have links to all of 19.9 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time.